You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. 3CR acknowledges that so-called Australia is a crime scene, that sovereignty was never ceded and that we live and work on stolen land. We recognise Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging and stand in solidarity with those resisting the settler colonial state. Welcome everyone, welcome to Uprise Radio, you're on Community Radio 3CR. That of course was Warumpi Band and their track Waru from the 1985 album Big Name No Blankets. And hey James, hey Jackson. Good afternoon. Hello, good to see your faces again. Today, following from our discussion with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth's last show, which you can check out on our podcast, we'll be continuing our discussion of the IPCC Assessment Report 6. So I'm sure for most of our listeners, the report needs no introduction. When speaking of approaches to climate change adaptation and mitigation, as with anything, the positionality of what is being proposed must be examined in regards to the voices and knowledges that are prioritised, the structural accessibility and implications of such approaches, proximity to power and language. Previous IPCC reports have been criticised for their framing of Indigenous peoples and traditional knowledge systems overlooking the historical and contextual complexities of Indigenous experiences and for the way that that is communicated to policymakers through the reports. The ongoing effects of colonialism, marginalisation, power relations, dispossession, land rights, and also the resistance to those things must be central to any discussion of climate change, as it is not only through these contexts can we examine its political, historical, social and cultural dimensions. Failure to frame climate change within these dimensions not only perpetuates the lies and historylessness of the settler and extractive colonialism, but exposes its vulnerabilities and undermines the potential for adaptation and mitigation in so-called Australia and elsewhere. While recognising that the first part of the IPCC report focuses primarily on the physical science of climate change and global warming, and that the next two parts due out next year will focus on impacts, adaptation, vulnerability and mitigation. We're joined today by Dan to discuss the importance of sovereignty, colonialism and, dare I say it, capitalism when we talk about climate change. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, To start off, I suppose, do you want to just introduce yourself for the listeners? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, My name is Yellong Bolo, but most people in the Western societies know me as like Dan Rowe. I'm a Gurangurang First Nation man from so-called Queensland. Our land stretches from about Bundaberg up to Gladstone and about as far out west as the northern Burnett region. I live on stolen land that rightfully belongs to the terrible people in so-called Ipswich. I'm going to pay my acknowledgement to the traditional owners, not with hollow words, affirmations or tokenistic tributes, but actively on the ground at various protest camps, actions and helping build solidarity and support for unceded sovereignty to be internationally recognised and our land returned. I do many things, uh, political organisation, community building, camps, a bit of radio with the Workers' Power Hour and 4 Z up here in Minjing. Subscribe, it's Radiothon. 
but probably the most relative to this, this segment is my major interest in indigenous environmental science, cultural burning, land management, and practicing in our country and teaching younger generations on how to use fire in the diverse ecosystems that are found on our country. Yeah, that's about me. Thank you. And yeah, welcome to the show. So I, I suppose um, starting off talking about fire management, I mean, after the bushfires, uh, we did mention with when we had our discussion with Cam the other week, um, who works at Friends of the Earth, he's a volunteer firefighter. But also after the fires that swept, the bushfires that swept water across the East Coast, um, how important is, is fire management and, and the things that you're doing? I suppose, could you just little, speak a little bit more about that just in terms of generally talking about climate and how these things are going to increasingly happen or we're expecting to increasingly happen and how to mitigate it? Yeah. Most pe Indigenous people already know climate changes. The climate is changing. Like We've watched colonisation turn the landscape around us into an, like an ecological nightmare in a short space of just 170 years in my, my nation's circumstances. But historically, this isn't the first time we've seen dramatic changes in the climate. We've all seen this as like humans. Um, our oral histories give these events like the knowledge and the confidence of coping with these major climatic changes and how to adapt. You know, we've experienced two ice ages on this continent, fires, thousand year droughts, floods, volcanoes, meteors, cyclones, and so on. Like, I can, when I stand in my country, I can peer back like 20,000 years when we, at the end of the last ice age, and see my ancestors existing in a total different landscape as we recolonize the East Coast. You know, megafauna going extinct, which we're part of, remember, all around us, like 100 meter sea level changes in the spaces of a few generations, an entire ecosystem is shifting to something else. Like, you can see this and evidence of this in like various adaptable Gondwanian rainforest species that are commonly found in like our really generally low rainfall and low nutrient sort of granite based soils. Like they're kind of bizarre to come across in such a dry sort of you know, ecosystem. So it's nothing new to us, and I, I, there's a lot of panic around climate change in Western societies, but I just don't seem to have it myself. I think we just feel like it's a big machine you're against, but uh, we do have the tools, the knowledge, and all sorts of things to, to, to combat climate change and possibly even reverse it, but we just we don't change our behaviour, basically. Mm, absolutely. I suppose when you look at something like the IPCC report, which takes most of its data sets and bases the modelling um, off kind of data sets of a couple of hundred years when you compare that to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, uh, forever, you know, yeah. how I, it's why the IPCC report, whilst it's really important, you know, how, how, how integral it is that, First Nations knowledges are just as central to this and the, the climate histories held in First Nations knowledges is just as integral as the scientific modelling. Indigenous people are the leading protectors environment. We make up less than 5% of the global population, yet we protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. So I suppose when we're, you know, a lot of out of the IPCC report, um, it doesn't really mention capitalism or, or colonialism. I mean, you know, and so a lot of the, the 
you know, this is, you know, also an economic kind of base question in regards to that. But um, the analysis of the economic structures, but given that the language, like there's language like the reference to carbon budgets, how much we left have left to spend in the report, and do you think that the framing of the way that we think about these issues in purely economic terms without analysing the structures that underpin them limit the scope of how we think about the issues and how, how it's we propose solutions? It. It's fundamental to it. Like, for instance, like the inquiry into the recent New South Wales Delta outbreak, the IPC report, IPCC report is only going to be used as a political fo football by opposition parties trying to score political points. I can already see it. There's going to be both sides are going to be blaming each other about which is the right model and how they're going to interpret the correct one and why, which false solution and why they went with that choice. Meanwhile, we'll get no real solutions and the world's just going to crumble around us. Right? There's no political party that has the power within the existing power structures and systems to bring about any real change. And none of them have an effective plan to deal with climate change in the first place. Right? In a dualistic way, there's no radical liberal middle-class movement such as Extinction Rebellion or the Greens Party, for example, that has an effective solution either. Like a lack of class consciousness and the inherent bias of operating within and trying to reform a cultural, ideological supremacist system is obviously not working and never really has. Dan, you, you said before, like, it's a massive machine. You just said, like, a cultural, ideological system. And I, I suppose... To my mind, one of the issues seems to be that, like, most people acknowledge that in Indigenous communities all over the world are some of the staunchest allies of whatever environmental movements that cap the capitalist systems have, have thrown up. But there's been a real lack of ability to integrate any of that knowledge into the systems of power that, that currently um, hold sway. What do you think is the best path, you know, for white middle-class people, for people growing up in so-called Australia who aren't Indigenous, to actually bring, you know, these ideas into fruition. And, like, I, I'm just trying to find some hope. It's been a really shitty news week, as you've just alluded to as well, like even more broadly around Australia and around the world. Like, what, you know, is there a path where all of this knowledge around the world and in Australia can, can actually start to take hold and push some kind of change? Or what do you see as the path? Um, one thing I can't stand is this constant negative narrative and constant blame game in Western media and uh, societies in general. It's like it's, we've been saturated, saturated in it for decades. Like, and we waste our time and distractions like signing change.org uh, petitions, which just don't even enter parliament anyway. You, you can't actually submit a petition to parliament through a change.org. It's like it's pointless. Like we, we sit there in our outraged opinions and Facebook comments, Twitter battles and rage dumping on news articles, but it's, it's never conducted to producing solutions or realistic alternatives that we can transition to it. No one ever changes their opinions. So we've still got some more positive things and create the world we want to live in. Like, like it's, why, why get stuck in this negative doom narrative? Like, by combining like modern farming techniques, we've got like aquaculture, hydroponics, and tropics. Like, permaculture is a cult, and I can't stand it. It's really white supremacists. <laughs> and like, we have like high production urban farms, and we can we can use like localized indigenous food systems. Like, 
not not in the context of like the Australian Wheat Board trying to appropriate native grasses and grow them outside of their natural ecospheres. Like, like we can bring food production back into the urban environment and under community control. Like, you know, we don't need to wait for some special way to generate power, carbon trading schemes, or some other future promise that's never going to get here. It's like waiting for Jesus to return or the masses to rise up or, you know, someone to go first. Like, it's not, it's not going to happen. It's like, you've got to take control now. Like, the problem is our behavior and how we distribute and manage land and resources. It's capitalism. Like, you know, and what these models and predictions don't talk about is what if we actually did this and what would it look like? Like, what if we did change our behavior? Like, what if we did suddenly have a social revolution and we started using indigenous fire manager, management to like reforest all this land we've cleared through corporate agriculture. Like we'd sink heaps of carbon, well, we'd stop lots of carbon like the bushfires in 2019. We'd prevent tons of carbon escaping into the atmosphere. We'd manage to, like it, we can't halt and reverse deforestation. We can use it to increase precipitation precipitation hold water within the landscape many other interrelated issues that like erosion control drought prevention like one way we've found to break into the western society with our indigenous knowledge systems is for instance recently a couple of years ago started cultural fire management consulting company burns on their private freehold blocks and we do it in a culturally appropriate way. We prevent large bushfires from affecting their blocks. And it's, it's a mutual thing. And we also use them as like a training event for our youth to like transfer these knowledge, these knowledge systems and these skills to the next generation. So it's, it's becoming like a mutual, you know, it's mutually beneficial to all involved kind of a thing. So, you know, I hate the Duma negative narrative. We can change the world. Yeah, I think I think it's good. Yeah, I really I think that's an interesting kind of like to try to take that positivity. And I, I think one of the kind of leading, you know, lights in the kind of climate debate in Australia has been young people. You know, we've seen more young people, you know, participating in strikes at school, more young people that are participating in, you know, things around the invasion day protests and, you know, wanting to engage in actually kind of understanding and and seeing their place in the world. I wonder, you know, through the kind of work that you're talking about and I guess, you know, trying to raise that uh, class consciousness as well and, you know, talking about some of the things, um, you know, you're kind of mentioning there is like, you know, perhaps a, um, you know, a breakout from within capitalism to have your own um, systems of organising that can kind of be the change that you want to see in the world. How, do, how is your kind of interactions with the people that you work around you know, land management and fire management and, you know, how are young people kind of responding to to those kind of ideas in the work that you've well, seen? With local, with the landowners on our country, they, they love it because they're actually creating an on-the-ground relationship with actual Indigenous people. And, like, often we have to camp out because they're large, you know, bush blocks generally have to camp out there and all that kind of jazz. And, you know, so you have a few beers and you have dinner with them and stuff like that. And you actually create a genuine relationship. Like 70% of Australians have never met a black fellow. Like I keep this in mind all the time because like I look pretty weird as you can see. So like most people I've run across, they've never encountered an indigenous person like me. So it's, you've got to handle them with kid gloves. Like, like, so it, 
that's that's the most critical thing. Like get out to pro like indigenous protest camps. Get out there, make a genuine, respectful, make friends, sit down, have a cup of tea, like create a relationship, right? And on from our side is we love it because it creates this we get this opportunity to hand over culture to our youth. And it's it's like a, a badge of pride to them. Like like when they come out and they do their first burn and they start to return in subsequent years, it's it's really empowering for them and it helps them connect with their identity and they get a chance to speak like actual lingo and like converse in it and things like that. Like it's, it's revival of culture at the same time. So it's, it's rhizomatic. It's yeah. It's symbiotic. It's mutually beneficial to both of us. Like, mm. like oh, in terms of cultures. Like. And can I ask a question about culture and its role in, um, averting environmental catastrophe or, or climate change that, you know, is unrecoverable from. Uh, you, you said before that, you know, you can stand on country and, and see back thousands of years, you know, and see your ancestors working it. And you spoke about the importance of cultural management, um, well, sorry, being in tune with culture while you do a burn, culturally appropriate burns. And I guess one of the ways that, you know, the settler colonial state othered Indigenous forms of knowledge was by putting it outside of like an Enlightenment rationalist spectrum. It was really interesting. Uh, we were doing an interview a few years ago with a woman who was working to highlight Indigenous connection to water in the context of water rights similar to land rights. And her name escapes to me right now, but, you know, within that book, you know, I was reading passages that were really actually, I suppose, expanding Indigenous knowledge in ways that I hadn't seen it presented before, you know, about law and about relationship to country. And I wonder if you could just talk about what role that plays within your behaviour, why that's important and, and how it changes people's behaviour. I'm not sure. I, I guess from a cultural perspective, we just have a different way of seeing the world. Like, I, I, I personally, I didn't finish high school. I don't even have a year 10 certificate yet most environmental scientists and so forth are baffled by just my, my knowledge when you take them out in, in, on country and you, you teach them this traditional knowledge, like, you know, indicators of when to burn. And because there's never a fixed date. It's quite blurry. It changes yearly, decades. You know, it's, it's a very blurry, non-specific, defined science. You have to watch for multiple things. There's many layers and it's quite complex. It takes years to sort of even begin to understand. Like I'm still, I'm still a learner at least myself kind of thing. So yeah, I'm not quite sure because I can't, I don't have the opposite perspective. I can't see the other way kind of a thing. So one tactic my uncle uses is, um, so he, He's in national park, or quite a few of my family are in national parks as rangers and so forth. And for a long time, he, he worked with turtles and breeding, you know, their breeding cycles and so forth. And we have old stories that, that uh, it sounds like a creation myth, but it's just an abstract way to talk about the timings of like uh, turtle breeding season. So I can't exactly tell you the story because it's not something that's for, for you. I'm sorry. So, but it it we use it to to it's just an affirmation that Western science is the exact same thing with all the timings. Yet our story, in a metaphorical way, is describing the exact same thing. We're just using two different philosophies to describe the same thing. Yeah. 
and it's just Western society dismisses our what they see as creation stories when they can't see the the higher metaphoric or abstract meaning within there. It's it's like how atheists reject all religion and, and miss the like the historical context of the Bible and the time it was written and the you know, empires crumbling in that period of time. When you read it with that with that historical context and that cultural context of what was going on in the time, you can see Jesus as a as a anti imperialist revolutionary that promoted some form of early socialism or something. I don't know. Comrade Jesus Christ, yeah. as Kev Carmody put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Kev. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder as well, Dan, I was just thinking about, you know, talking about culture and connection to country. And, you know, I, I work with um, young Aboriginal people as a, um, as a youth worker. And, you know, one of the, one of the big things like that we is trying to get young people connected back to their culture and, and, you know, to, I guess it just seems like, you know, I just can't help but think like you're talking about, I guess, climate change in the context of, you know, a much broader kind of picture of, of, you know, of the land and of um, Aboriginal culture and history and all of those kind of things. Um, and, you know, putting it into that perspective. And I think that's really important but it's, it can't help but, um, you know, feel so frustrated and it's, I'm sure, only a fraction of what you you may feel. But how far behind we are, not alone just connecting young Aboriginal kids to their culture, you know, for all of Australia, all people to have a sense of, like, all of these kind of things you're talking about, all of these practices, you know, the parts of the culture that... Um, you know, is appropriate to share all of that kind of stuff that we are stuck so far behind trying to catch up and learn anything. You know, it's not taught in school. We're still taught a uh, lied history about school, in school, sorry, about um, our history, about Aboriginal culture. Everything is so far behind, you know, like we have these, as you said, very tokenistic kind of acknowledgements and flags and things in government buildings, but we still not integrating these practices into policy, into schools, into everyone's lives. There's no real question there, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I just a, feel a, that, you know, in what you're saying, and it's, a, it's frustrating. It's a system that's based on basically dismissing an entire civilization. Mm. Like, it, there's no way to reform it. It's broken from the beginning. It's designed what? like like the East India companies, and there was heaps of them at the same time, these giant military corporations that colonised the world for profit. It's the same thing. It's never changed. Like, that's, that's why you're here. Like, they took up all the land, criminalised everyone that couldn't pay rent, sent you here. Like, it's why you're here. It's not your fault. Like, <laughs> we're Just as Indigenous people, we've just managed, yours has played out over the last 400 years, when in my country it's only been... 150 years. So my mother remembers massacre survivors. So it was systematic. Like the land was taken up by mostly rich pastoralists who were like the sons of like the ruling class back in England. And basically it was like, come on, you just tell your boy, you sell the other end of the world, they give you a bunch of recently freed prisoners or you know, basically white slaves. And you march to this longitude and latitude, and as far as you can see, you peg it all out and it's yours. And they sat there, committed genocide, 
then subdivide it all up and like your fourth and fifth generation farmers that's that's what they bought like these were these were giant corporations that just colonized the world purely for profit and they were mostly the ruling upper class from britain or england sorry so i suppose when we when we're talking about climate change and adaptation and recognizing that that's we are on stolen land uh any sort of policy that talks about, you know, there, there is a big emphasis on on technological adaptation. Um, so, you know, there are, it needs to be recognised that even with renewable energy, it does still require extraction. Um, and given all of, all of these things that we're doing is always on Aboriginal land. And so it does centre sovereignty and land rights into a discussion that it's not merely just about adaptation to climate change, but it's necessary to interrogate the entire thing and history of the colonial state and how it even thinks about land, you know, and so... That's why you need to abolish Australia. What would it look like on this continent? I think the starting point would be a process of giving land back to First Nations as well as their sovereign autonomy to have control over how it's managed. And what would that look like? Probably not pathetic attempts like reconciliation campaign or some Uluru statement of bleeding hearts, like which makes Indigenous people give up their sovereignty and become like a, a tokenistic, small minority guaranteed in government like the system they have in in New Zealand I, I, I re- reject the idea of any form of treaty like, it's unceded sovereignty like, it's my land maybe we could shift local council boundaries to align with the First Nation boundaries you know, declare them an independent First Nation states so you Oh, you Migaloos become like citizens of our country and we form a continental-wide union of First Nation states that abolishes Australia entirely. I don't know. I can dream, can't I? I mm-hmm. Land back. Yeah. There's no other way. Yeah. There's no other way. Land back, yeah. And, you know, taking that, if we can play it out for a second as a given, what do you think, um, I guess what's what's... I suppose one of the outcomes of that is that there would be a complete plurality of Indigenous decision-making, you know, because it's not one nation, you know, to borrow an ugly phrase. It's many nations and uh, in in this model that you're describing and And an approach to climate change is going to really be dependent on the landscape in which is being asked to to give up these minerals or uh, being asked to have the windmills built built on them. Hmm. And you find like a lot of First Nations, their boundaries are lined up with like water catchments and, and you know, they, they cover a very you know, type of geology or, you know, that, that's what defines their boundaries often is that's how you can, you know, I come from Sandy Loam country, like within my nation, I've got like a sub clan. We're not all related either. And we're like Goraganachi clan. Like, so it's like the extended families of the white Sandy Loam people. Like that's, that's so I, that's why I know a lot about sandy type, type countries and the plants that grow on them kind of a thing. So, so that could yeah. be really good for like geo, uh, uh, what's it called? Like uh, where you only consume food that 
that grows around you and only, you know, because I suppose, you know, one of the things that's often elated in these reports is consumption and how insane our consumption has become, you know, and flying oranges from California to eat all year yeah. round or, or whatever. Well, corporate agriculture, that's another one of my passions is, is trying to destroy corporate agricultural systems. Like they are, they are the leading cause of deforestation globally. Like whether you eat beef or you eat soya beans, it doesn't matter. Like it's, it is the leading cause of deforestation and having tree cover on this planet is probably one of the biggest things we need to really get onto to stop desertification and catch a bit of like rain that comes out of the ocean, you know, and precipitation and things like that. Like we already grow 10, 10 times the amount, like on this continent, we already grow 10 times the amount of food like that we actually need to eat. We export most of it overseas and most of its production relies on environmental and human exploitation. Like, like giant irrigation schemes where they catch all the floodwaters and harvest it and then sell it on the stock exchange. That's, that's why the Murray river basin doesn't flow anymore. Like, like we, we, we can't even pick our own fruit. Like we rely on overseas workers and like poor people in third world countries to pick our fruit and vegetables. Like it's pathetic. Like we eat a minuscule amount of like localized native foods or fruits or vegetables. Like most of what we eat, has been taken through the process of colonization from around the world. And even then we only eat a tiny fraction of all the edible foods that exist globally. Like we have to, and it's not just indigenous agroforestry is not going to feed 25 million people and they're not going to willingly starve themselves to death. Like we've, we can combine modern farming techniques. Like we have the technology, we have the knowledge, we've got it all. Like just it's yeah. capitalism. Well, we might have to wrap up there because we're getting to the end of time. Uh, but, Dan, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing, you know, no, thank you. with us and our listeners. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. And, uh, have a great night, guys. Yeah, take care. Something to think about. It's good. Don't be negative. Be highly cynical and extremely optimistic. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.